0: As we continue to make our way through Dr. Luke's account of the history of the early church. And this morning we come to Paul's appeal before Festus. And I've entitled my discourse to you, The Apostles' Appeal. Let me read the 12 verses that we will examine this morning. And then we will unpack them a bit, and apply them to our hearts. Acts chapter 25, beginning with verse 1. Festus, therefore, having arrived in the province three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem, at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. And after he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. And on the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And after he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law or the Jews, the law of the Jews, or against the temple, or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. I hope you have been enjoying this study as I have. Every scene seems to be electric with the ongoing battle between the darkness and the light. The kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of light. And at every turn we seem to see the the fiendish Forces of evil attempting to thwart the purposes of God, but never able to do so. And it's interesting that despite all of the lies, all of the assassination, assassination plots, despite the overwhelming political opposition aligned against Paul and the nascent church, they never seem to prevail until God allows them to do so. You know, as Christians, we should find great comfort and such providential protection as we endure similar mistreatment in our culture. I find it interesting in this year of a presidential election, we can clearly see the nation's hostility towards anything sacred or anything reflective of Christian virtue, of genuine biblical Christianity. How often do you hear people talking about, presidential candidates or other politicians describing them as men or women of integrity, of purity, of honesty, of reverence, of a fear of God. Well, you never hear anything like that. And frankly, I tire of all of the political sound bites and platitudes carefully crafted to deceive the naive and the ignorant. I tire of all of the name calling and all of the finger-pointing all of the blame-shifting. And now we find ourselves reaping much of what we have sown because of all of the liberal, politically correct social activists in government who have imposed regulations on lending institutions, forcing them to give loans to people who would be unable to pay them. Staggering the malfeasance that we see in our leadership, a violation of the public trust. And, of course, the answer is the government has to come along and rescue everyone to the tune of, what was it, $850 billion now. It'll probably be a trillion dollars, which, frankly, is the largest single act of socialism in the history of our country, and I believe that that was ultimately their goal all along. And sadly, much of the same type of stuff has slithered into the church where there's far more tares than there are wheat. How often do we read in so called Christian churches stories of unrestrained greed and unbridled immorality of people that name the name of Christ yet would support the killing of an unborn infant? Unbelievable. And then there's the escalating hatred of Bible doctrine, even in churches that claim to believe the Bible. Inconceivable. In fact, fundamental Bible believing Christians are the only minority now in the United States that can be ridiculed and maligned without in any way violating the sacred code of political correctness. I find it interesting There's a comedian by the name of Bill Mayer, and maybe you have heard about him. He's attacking uh, all of the organized religions. He's got a documentary called Religulous, indicating that religion is ridiculous. And, of course, all of the people laugh. And I shudder when I hear them laugh, because that laughter, dear friends, will be used as a testimony against them someday in a day of reckoning. But increasingly, we see our culture associating fundamental Bible-believing Christians like ourselves with fundamentalist Islam. As if we are insane, violent terrorists, kind of unwanted parasites living in the world, causing all of the problems of the world. But I say all of this to say this is nothing new. As we've read our text here this morning we see that genuine Christianity was hated even in in the first century. The Jews hated Christianity. They still hate Christianity. The pagan Gentiles hated Christians. And this will continue until the Lord returns. In fact, Paul reminds us of 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1, in the last days, difficult times will come, literally perilous or savage times will come. And I believe we're seeing them even now. He went on to say, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revelers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And later he said, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then he added, But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And we see this momentum. Escalating. In the 56 years of my life, I have seen this momentum. And frankly, in the last 10 years, it has has been astounding. We know that even during the time of unprecedented cataclysmic judgment, that God will pour out upon the earth during the time of the tribulation. Just before he returns, that men during that time, which could be, frankly, at any time. That men will continue to have a violent hatred of Christ. They will know who he is, but they will hate him. They will refuse to repent. They will refuse to worship him. And instead, they will actually blaspheme his name. Even in the midst of his wrath, for example, in Revelation nine. We read how that God will release 200 million demons from the great river Euphrates area, which, interestingly enough, is modern day Iraq. And there in verse 15, he says that they may kill a third of mankind. He went on to say in verse 20 and the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues. You would think that the next phrase would be repented of their wickedness. No. It says they did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. And in Revelation 16 The fourth bowl judgment that is poured out upon the earth during that time. We read that men were scorched with fierce heat and they repented. No. And they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. And even in the fifth bowl. In Revelation 16, we read that they gnawed their tongues because of pain and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Beloved, all of this to say the world absolutely hates God and all who love him. Oh, yes, they will tolerate Christians because we live in a pluralistic society where You can believe whatever you want to believe, because after all, we don't really know what truth is. But for you Christians, don't you dare insinuate that I am a sinner and that I am living under the condemnation of a holy God. Don't you dare condemn my lifestyle, no matter how immoral or how depraved it might be. Moreover, don't you dare tell me that Jesus is the Son of God, the only Savior and only Lord, and that He is the only hope of salvation. Because if you preach that message, I will do all I can to silence you. And dear Christian, were it not for God's saving grace, we would all be equally as antagonistic and blind. Well, of course all of this played out is played out right before us here in Acts 25 with the Jews at war with a converted rabbi by the name of Paul. And this morning I want to focus on three scenarios that emerge from this historical account. Each one of them I believe gives us insight into how we should practically live out our faith. In Christ, in this hostile world. First, we will see a simmering hatred of Christ and his apostle. Secondly, we will see a summary of Paul's defense. And then, thirdly, we will notice a polite rebuke to an authority. And then, after we look at those, I'm going to give you very briefly. Five essentials for exalting Christ in a world that hates him, each of which were written by Paul during this particular season of his life in the prison epistles. Now, before we look at the text closely, let me remind you that Luke now is living somewhere close to Paul here in this region of Caesarea. He's there to care for him. In chapter 27, he will once again join him for the journey to Rome. But frankly, Luke has been absent from Paul's presence since chapter 21 in verse 18. Paul now has been living in protective custody in the governor's mansion there in Caesarea for about two years. You will recall that Felix had heard his case But realized that he had violated no law, but because he was afraid of the Jews and he knew that the Jews wanted to kill him, he had to do something to protect him. And certainly he was also looking for a bribe and so forth. And then we know that historically the emperor of Rome finally realized how cruel Felix was and he was removed from his office. Then the emperor now has brought in another man to take his place, another governor by the name of Festus. And what's interesting here that you must remember is Festus is inheriting a province that is embroiled in political turmoil. The Jews right now have a hatred for the Romans that is almost at a fever pitch. And, of course, it's going to get worse and worse until finally the Romans are going to put them down in A.D. 70. Also, the place has been overrun by robbers. The Sicarii, the Sicarii, Sicari referred to a small dagger. They were basically the terrorists of that day. They would go in and they would kill people. They would murder They would plunder the villages, set them on fire and so forth. And historians spoke of Festus as being a very able administrator and one that was much more of an honorable man than Felix and one that also was quite successful in ridding the region of these bandits. But he inherited yet another huge problem, one that will result in many sleepless nights. And that is the unresolved problem of this Christian rabbi, Paul. So in the first days of his administration in Judea, although his headquarters is in the Roman city of Caesarea, he's going to travel now 65 miles up to Jerusalem to the headquarters of the Jews. And he's going to spend several days there, as we see, and get to know the power brokers. That's what these officials needed to do, get a feel for the politics. And notice again in chapter twenty five, verse one Festus, therefore, having arrived in the province three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea and the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul and they were urging him requesting a concession against Paul that he might have him brought to Jerusalem. At the same time, setting an ambush to kill him on the way. And, of course, we have seen this before. So here, first of all, we see a simmering hatred of Christ and his apostle. It's fascinating, isn't it? You stop and think about it. After, even after two years, the Sanhedrin still salivate like hungry wolves wanting to kill Paul. And no doubt this was exacerbated by the enormous, almost a brush fire of Christianity that was spreading through the region, especially there in Jerusalem. And of course, all of this threatened their power base. And I find it interesting that once again, we have an example of the murderous violence that characterizes false religious systems, false religionists. And we've seen this down through history. Now, you've got to understand something here. There's a big problem for Festus. You see, he can't look too eager to somehow accommodate all of these Jewish power brokers here in the Sanhedrin. Otherwise, he's going to look like a milk toast. He's going to look like a pushover. And they're going to start taking advantage of him. So he can't do that. But on the other hand, he's going to have to deal with this Paul or else there might be an uprising. So in verse 4, Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. That's another another way of saying, don't worry, I've got this under control, I'll handle it. Verse 5, therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. You could almost put it this way. He's saying that since Paul is a Roman citizen, He's basically under my jurisdiction, not under yours. So he needs to be tried in Caesarea. And if there is really any serious problem, then you need to come to me and I will hear the testimony of your prosecution and I will deal with this. So verse six, after he had spent no more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. And I find this interesting. And on the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to. To be to be brought. Obviously, he knew that this was a volatile situation. It needed to be handled quick, to, quickly, so he wasted no time. And I would imagine he was also very curious as to what in the world was the big issue here. Verse seven. And after he had arrived, the Jews had come down from Jerusalem and they stood around him. Isn't that interesting? Bringing many and serious charges against him which they could not prove. I want you to notice the imagery here that the Spirit of God uses through the inspired writer Luke. They stood around him. It's the idea of encircling him. You get the image there of a pack of wolves, don't you? Have you ever been in a situation where people that hated you stood around you? I have, and it's not a comfortable situation. It's a frightening scene, and I find it reminiscent of when they brought Jesus before Caiaphas, the high priest, along with the scribes and the elders. In Matthew 26, we read with Jesus, it says they kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus in order that they might put him to death. Then they went on to say when Jesus acknowledged that he was indeed the son of God, the high priest tore his robe saying he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? He is deserving of death. And then the text reads, they, Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hits you? Then they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Now, my friends, we have a very similar scene here that is unfolding with the Apostle Paul. So the Jews are going to turn on what we would call today the spin machine with all of their ridiculous trumped up charges to try to somehow get Festus to hear them and to rule in their favor. And get rid of this guy that was one of the leaders of the way that was causing so much problem in their land. And it's interesting that Luke here basically summarizes the charges that they have as well as Paul's defense. But it's interesting, too, they were obviously the same ones that had been used there a couple of years before. Namely, that in the eyes of the Jews, remember, their charge was, he's a real pest. Well, boy, that's a big one there you need to deal with. This guy's a real pest. And that he stirred up unrest among the Jews worldwide. And that he was a ringleader of what they considered a non-Jewish sect. Now, all of those were very vague allegations. You remember, we've studied them before. And then finally, that he tried to desecrate the temple. Now, that was more serious. But again, there's no eyewitnesses. So we read that they bring up many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. You know, it's always interesting, and I believe it's characteristic of all of us. Because of this deceitfulness in our hearts that we want to believe certain things. And we believe, therefore, what we want to believe. And many times we concoct things. And then once you begin to concoct a lie, you begin to exaggerate it a little bit. You know how that works? You begin to add two digits to it. You know, and after a few other people have heard it and have done the same thing, that lie gets bigger and bigger. And before you know it, you actually believe the very lie that you've concocted. And this is the type of thing that's going on here. Beloved, I want you to hear something. Make no mistake about it. Their hatred for the Apostle Paul was utterly eclipsed by their contempt for the Lord Jesus Christ. This will always be the case. In John 15, Jesus warned of this very thing. In verse 18, he said, if the world hates you. You know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this in order that the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. Quote, they hated me without a cause. Dear friends, what a commentary on human depravity. You stop and think about it. Here you have the Lord Jesus who the word of God says was altogether lovely. Yet he is hated without a cause. Here you have the very son of God. And yet he is called a blasphemer in Scripture. The very embodiment of mercy and grace. And yet we know that he was despised. That he was rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Spurgeon remarked on this so poignantly. And I quote, Ah, beloved, I will not tell you of man's adulteries and fornications and murders and poisonings and sodomies. I will not tell you of man's wars and bloodsheds and cruelties and rebellions. If I want to tell you man's sin, I must tell you that man is a deicide, that he put to death his God and slew his Savior. And when I have told you that, I have given you the essence of all sin, the masterpiece of crime, the very pinnacle and climax of the terrific pyramid of mortal guilt. Man outdid himself when he put his savior to death and sin did out Herod Herod, Herod when it slew the Lord of the universe, the lover of the race of man who came on earth to die. Never does sin appear so exceedingly sinful. Sinful. As when we see it pointed at the person of Christ, whom it hated without a cause, End quote. So here, beloved, we see a choice servant of God encircled by ravenous wolves, religious men who hate him because they despise the God that he serves. And now, secondly, we see a theme, that of a summary of Paul's defense in verse eight. Said Paul says in his own defense, I have committed no offense, either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. And here again, we have a summary of the charges that had been raised against him, none of which rose to the level of a capital offense under Roman law. And I find it interesting, too. We know that, that, that Festus now is utterly clueless. He's thinking to himself, what in the world is the big deal? I I just don't get it. This is just a bunch of religious infighting. You ask, well, well, how do you know? Well, look over at verse 18 here in chapter 25. Later on, he is going to write this in, in his note. To Caesar's tribunal in verse 18, he says, and when the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a certain dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. And being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. And we'll study more about that when we get to it. But here you see that Festus was clueless. What in the world is going on? And so given the dilemma before him, that of trying to uphold Roman law with a Roman citizen and at the same time appease the Jews, he decides that he'd better offer some kind of a compromise. So in verse nine, he says, wishing to do the Jews a favor, he answered Paul and said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? In other words, I'll be the judge. Why don't you come to the seat of rule for the Jews, which would be in Jerusalem? And then I will adjudicate the matter. Well, Paul saw right through this. This might look like a good compromise on the surface, but Paul knew that it would be a death sentence for him because he knew that the same thing would happen as they had done before, and that is that they would assassinate him before he ever got to Jerusalem on that 65-mile journey. And, you know, Paul probably wondered, hasn't, hasn't Festus read the letter that Claudius Lysias had sent earlier to Felix regarding the plot to kill me? I, I, doesn't he know what they were up to a couple of years ago? We don't know if he did or didn't, but regardless, this was the compromise that he gave. Now, I want you to notice Paul's response to the governor's ill-conceived compromise. And Here we see the third theme that emerges from the text, and that is of a polite rebuke to an authority. Verse 10, he says, but Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. In other words, he's saying, you, Festus, are the emperor's surrogate. You speak for him. There's no need for me to go to Jerusalem. I respect Roman justice. And as a Roman citizen, it is my right to have it. I respect you. You speak for the emperor. And he went on to say, I've done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of these things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his council, now let me stop here. I would imagine what happened is after Paul said this, Festus thought, okay, he wants to go to Caesar. And he probably said, excuse me just a second. And he probably looked around to his council and said, hey, guys, come here a minute. Let's have a little huddle. Like, can he do that? Can he, can he go to Caesar? Well, yeah, he can do that. I mean, he's a Roman citizen. Okay. Then he turns around and he says, all right, you want to go to Caesar? You're going to go to Caesar. Now, first of all, there's a very important principle that emerges here, and that is that we are to submit to our government, to the authorities that God has placed over us. But it doesn't mean that you have to just kowtow to everything they say. I mean, here we have Paul giving him a very polite rebuke. He's basically saying, look, you know, I respect you as the Roman governor and the one that should adjudicate this case. But you know that I'm innocent. You know that. Now, you must do what is right according to the law. And if you don't, I'm going to go to go to Caesar. Matter of fact, that's what I want to do. Now, this is a significant turning point in this whole ordeal. You stop to think about it. One minute, Festus probably. Well, first of all, Festus has to straddle the fence at first. Right. He's got to try to deal with Roman law, but he doesn't want to anger the Jews. So he's straddling the fence and he's trying to please to please both of them. By the way, whenever you try to please two opposing parties, you're going to offend both of them. All right. Always happens. But now. He's no longer between the Jews and Paul. Guess where he is. He's between Caesar and Paul. Now That's a big deal. There is a big problem here, and it probably began to dawn on him. At first, he's thinking, wow, I've dodged that bullet. All right, why don't you go let Caesar deal with this? And then all of a sudden, he's starting to think, I would imagine, oh, my, what have I done? Can you imagine the fear that began to creep over Festus When he realized that he's going to have to send a report to the emperor regarding Paul's charges and why he was unable to adjudicate the matter. He's going to have to say, well, you know, I I mean, the the guy was a real pest and he stirred up unrest among the Jews worldwide. He was a ringleader of what they considered a non-Jewish sect. He tried to desecrate the temple, but there's no eyewitnesses and there's no proof. Um, I would imagine Caesar would get that and say, my goodness, what kind of a moron have I put in Judea to govern these Jews? But you know, friends, if you look at it, you realize once again the providence of God, don't you? Here we see the marvelous hand of divine providence orchestrating the affairs of men to fulfill the Lord's promise to Paul. And what was that promise? That you're going to go to Rome. You're going to go to Rome. I imagine, I imagine that Paul slept like a baby that night. But I bet Festus began walking the floors. Now, I wish to focus briefly on five essentials for exalting Christ in a world that hates him and hates you. And I, I wanted to do this just for a moment because as you understand the context here of the history And Paul's mindset, you might ask yourself, I wonder what Paul's attitude was like during this time. That's what we want to look at briefly in closing here this morning. Let me remind you of a couple of things here. The scene that we have just examined took place around fifty nine A.D. And we know historically that Paul would soon be in Rome under house arrest, once again waiting for his trial. And during that time, he is going to write what are commonly called the prison epistles. He's going to write Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians and Philemon. And we know that Nero would eventually hear his case and release him sometime before A.D. 64. In fact, it was during that time that he wrote 1 Timothy and he wrote Titus. He did. He wrote those letters as a free man. But we also know historically that in July of A.D. 64, seven of Rome's 14 districts burned. And we know ultimately that it was Nero that burned them. He loved building projects. He wanted to build a golden temple for himself and so on. So these provinces burn, But guess what Nero did? He blamed the Christians. We know that this man became so incredibly evil, he would sew bloody animal skins on Christians and feed them to wild animals. He would impale them on stakes while they were alive. He would cover them with pitch and burn them alive as lanterns in his garden and in a big racetrack that he would run around. The man was absolutely demonic. Demonic. And frankly, he was no different than some of the leaders that we see in our world today. Given a chance, they would do the same thing. And it was during that time that Paul was imprisoned once again. He was tortured severely. And we read about that in Second Timothy. And then he was finally executed. Now, certainly we pray that we will never have to experience anything close to this. But may I remind you that many believers do around the world. There's over 400 that are martyred for the cause of Christ every day. But I want to remind you of some of the attitudes as we close this morning. Some of the attitudes of Paul during this season in his life. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And here we see some of the essential attitudes for exalting Christ in a world that hates him. I'm going to go over this very briefly. But I find them to be very encouraging and such an insight into Paul's heart during this time. The first thing that he would have us do, dear friends, is to be obedient, be obedient. Look at verse 12 of Philippians 2. He says, so then my Beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, persevere in faithful obedience. Come what may. You see, this will inevitably prove the genuineness of our faith, dear friends. It will prove the power of the spirit of God that is work in our lives so that we will bear the fruits of Of the spirit, like we read in Galatians five, love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, faithfulness, gentleness, all of those things. Secondly, he wants us to be confident. Look at verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The word work in We get the word energy energized from that. It is God that is energizing our faithful obedience, our perseverance. And what Paul is saying here is I've got confidence in this. Regardless of what's happening in my life, I am absolutely confident that God is at work. He trusted in God's sovereign rule over his life. Dear friends, when life seems to be crumbling all around you, You can either respond in obedience and in confidence, or you can be a whiner, a complainer. And that's why Paul went on to say, and he wants us to be positive. Thirdly, verse 14, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. You know, Paul had all the reason in the world to grumble and dispute, didn't he? By the way, it's interesting, the word grumbling Gongusmas" in Greek, kind of a nasty-sounding word. It's one of those what's called an onomana poetic word. It's literally a Greek term that is defined by its sound. And what grumbling—the way you would interpret that—is that's that's how it would be. And he's saying, do all things without that, or without disputing, which is literally a reference to arguing with God. Beloved, please hear this. God hates whiners. And so does everybody else that gets around one. Why? Because that sour, sullen attitude says, God, you are not fair. And God, what you are doing in my life is unkind. It's not reflective of your goodness. And I don't like it. But We know that Paul knew how to be content in all things. And to rejoice in all things, even Peter said in first Peter 315, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Beloved, if you're whining and complaining, grumbling and disputing, people aren't going to see that hope. And they're not going to ask you, you know, how do you have such hope? In other words, such joy, such confidence in your God when everything around you is falling apart. You see, grumbling and disputing manifests a profound lack of hope, a lack of trust in a sovereign and loving God. Fourthly, he wants us to be blameless, verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And my, how well Paul understood that. Friends, it's the same way today. We're to be blameless. It means without moral or spiritual blemish. We're to be innocent. In other words, pure, uncontaminated by sin in the world. We're not to look like the world, to talk like the world, to act like the world. We're not to be conformed to the world. Why? So that, fifthly, we would, well, the way I like to put it is be bright, be bright. Look what he says, verse 15, the end of verse 15. Among whom you appear as lights. You could translate that appear as luminaries, as stars, as the sun. Among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. In other words, all that I did in ministering to you has come to fruition, and you give God glory. He's saying, I want you to shine. I want you to be a light in a dark world. I want you to appear. I want you to be visible to other people. If I can put it this way, I want people in the midst of that dark world in which you live, in which I'm living now, I want them to look at you in the darkness of these circumstances and say, my, how that person stands out. My, look at that appearance. I want you to be bright. I want you to give give off the light of truth and of hope and of my glory. Daniel said in Daniel 12, 3, those who have insight will shine bright, brightly, like the brightness of the expanse of heavens and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So, beloved, he's saying when trials come your way. And again, remember now, he's writing this in the midst of enormous persecution and suffering. When trials come your way. I want you to thank God for that opportunity that you have to put his glory on display. What I want you to do is to persevere in obedience, come what may. Know the word and live the word. What I want you to do is be confident that God is at work in you. And that he is going to accomplish all of the glorious purposes that he has for you. And I want you to be positive. I don't want you grumbling. I don't want you disputing with God. I want you to be content with whatever situation I've placed you in. I want you to be filled with joy. Thus showing the world, as the great hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is what? Is sinking sand. And I want you to be blameless and innocent. I want you to be faultless before the world. I want them to look at you and say, my, that person is different. So that you will reflect my glory in the darkness that is all around you so that many will come to repentant faith in Christ. Dear friend, this was the heart of the great apostle during this dark season of his life. But please know, the darker the night, the brighter the light. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these truths. Apply them to our hearts. We rejoice knowing that Jesus said that he was the light of this world. And he who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. Lord, I pray for anyone that might be within the sound of my voice that's walking in darkness. They know it because their conscience bears witness to that truth. They might fool everyone around them, but they don't fool you. Spirit of God, I pray that you will overwhelm them with the truths of your word. Make their sin be a stench to their own nostrils as it is to yours. And may they come to you in repentance, in self-denial, in brokenness. May today be the day that they experience the miracle of the new birth. I ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olive tree resources. org.